epistle to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians. And up to this point in time, what he's been doing is kind of giving a defense uh, of his ministry. Uh, people in Corinth were upset with him, disappointed in him. He had said that he would come to see them. He was unable to do that. And so immediately people complained. You know, it sounds like the church. People were complaining. He's not that great. He's boring when he's here. Uh, he's uh, said he was going to come. He didn't come. So uh, he's laying out for them the reasons why he didn't come. And then finally here he's rounding off that passage uh, in what we're going to read here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now, this is a complicated passage. Uh, a lot of images, a lot of things, and the argument is not straightforward. So let me tell you what I think is going on here. So what he's thinking is, he says to them, so do I need a letter of recommendation? So that you will think uh, that I'm a legitimate apostle. And then he says, no, you, I, I don't need a letter of recommendation because you're my letter of recommendation. And as he thinks about letters, then immediately he thinks letters... Well, that reminds me of when God wrote letters on a stone in the mountain when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And that was okay, and that was glorious, but this is even better because of God's work in you, right? And so he kind of he kind of morphs this argument uh, from going from, do I need a letter of recommendation, to saying, no, actually what God is doing in you now is better than any letters that he wrote in the Old Testament because he's doing something unique and profound in you by giving you his spirit. Complicated. The fact of the matter is, this is a tough text for us, not because of his argument, but because it challenges us to do and to believe something that we by nature never would see and believe. And that is that the greater glory of God is quiet, internal, slow, ever-present, instead of what is splashy. So uh, <clears throat> so it's one of those texts that I preach, as I, I said to the, to the 9 o'clock service, it's a tough thing to tell people that because we can think to ourselves, well, I'm not drawn to that which is shiny, attractive, glorious, that kind of stuff. I'm only drawn to what nobody else sees. So let me read the text, um, just because it's here. It's God's word, and we should hear it and uh, respond to it. So 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 11. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, In this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if you know what a letter is. Um, <laughs> I don't, um, I, I just don't know. I don't, I, I guess it's kind of alien to people to write letters anymore, you know, like to take a pen and a piece of paper. There's this, they used to have special paper for letters called stationery. And you write on there and you write the letter and you, when you're done with it, you sign your name at the end of it and then you fold it up and you put it in an envelope and you write an address on that. And then you put this stamp, an outrageously priced thing from the government in the upper right hand corner. And then you take it to a box usually out in front of your house, and you put it in that box and put a little red flag up on it, and a man in a cute little car comes by, or a woman, picks it up, and it appears in a box just like that at someone else's house, and they open it up and they read it. It's a a novel concept. I don't know if anybody does that anymore. It used to be very prevalent. It used to be a big part of life uh, in America, and one of the things that I have taken to doing is reading people's letters uh, and reading what what has been preserved as uh, letters that people have written. And Paul speaks today in this text of a a letter. Uh, he starts out talking about a letter of recommendation. Don't write those; you'll get sued if you do. Uh, bad idea. Uh, uh, they they've really kind of fallen uh, by the wayside if you give an honest. Uh, um, appraisal of someone's work or something like that. Uh, so that letters of recommendation even aren't uh, that big anymore. I don't think parents write letters to their kids anymore. My, uh, when my, uh, uh, <clears throat> when my mom died earlier this year, my, uh, uh, nieces found a bunch of letters that my brother and I wrote each other when he first went to college. And I was at home describing what life was like there with, without him being there. And they, they thought, uh, they thought those letters were really great. They've collected them. They're going to publish them someday, I think. But, um, um, I have, I have books of letters. Here's a book uh, called Posterity, Letters of Great Americans to Their Children. So Steve Bird's letters are in here. Great Americans to his children. Uh, actually, what I came across here as I was reading this, uh, and just to challenge you a little bit about uh, how we tend to think, and there are many of us in here who think uh, no one's had anxiety or parenting issues uh, until now. This Here's a letter from a Puritan woman. Uh, her name was Ann Bradstreet. Maybe you've uh, heard of Ann Bradstreet. We've sung, we've sung some of her songs here before. She was a poet, a Puritan, uh, born in England, immigrated here uh, to uh, New England. And uh, uh, she was getting, uh, as she grew older, she was thinking about what she could leave her, her children. And so she decided that she would leave her son, Simon, uh, a, a letter uh, with uh, 77, uh, um, what she calls, meditations, divine and moral. 77. I'm not going to read all 77 of them, but... Uh, I don't know if I could come up with 77, but um, here's what she says in this letter. This was written March 20th, 1664. So 413 years ago and a week. My dear son, Simon Bradstreet, in case he was confused about who he was. My dear son, Simon Bradstreet. 
parents perpetuate their lives in their posterity. In other words, uh, you imitate your parents. Uh, and their manners uh, are imitated often. Children do naturally rather follow the failings than the virtues of their predecessors. So you, you thought, as a mom, that you were the first one to think, oh no, I see my sin in my kids. <laughs> I see my failings in my children. Well, she, now, now maybe some of you don't have any failings. Uh, so you, you can read the bulletin while I, while I read this. But um, she says, um, no, that's, that's not at all uh, the case. She was, she was anxious um, that he would follow the failings than the virtues of their predecessors. But I'm persuaded of better things of you. Right? You once desired me to leave something for you in writing that you m- might look upon uh, when you should see me no more. What a great gift, right? I could think of nothing more fit for you, nor of more ease to myself than these short meditations following, all 77 of them, right? Such as they are, I bequeath to you. Small legacies are accepted by true friends, much more by dutiful children. So she she goes on to tell him, you know, uh, the Lord should bless you with grace Crown you with glory hereafter, that I may meet you with rejoicing at that great day of appearing, which is the continual prayer of your affectionate mother, A period, B period. She put her initials, which I think is pretty cool. So um, here's some of her meditations that she wrote to him. Uh, and I think this is, uh, well, this, this is a good one. Youth is the time of getting. Middle age of improving. I did not know that, so that that uh, condemned me this week. Uh, an old age of spending. Who knew they had 401ks back uh, then, right? A negligent youth is usually attended by an ignorant middle age. There's my excuse. And both by an empty old age. He that has nothing uh, to seed on but vanity and lies must lie down in a bed of sorrow. Wow, what, that's some strong words from mom. And then this one, which I think is my favorite one. A ship that has much sail and little or no ballast. Ballast is the weight you put in the bottom of a ship to keep it from flipping over. Is evil, easily uh, overturned. And that man whose head has great abilities. I'm looking to see if I see any of those men with great abilities. And his heart, little or no grace, is in danger of overturning. Good words from from mom there, huh? So, um, Paul says, "Do I need a letter of recommendation? Do I need to do do I need to have someone write to you, church in Corinth, people I know and I love?" Once again, to recommend me to you that I actually have something to say to you and something worthwhile to you, uh, for you. Uh, why would I do that? I don't need to do that. You yourselves are my letter. And, and not only are you yourselves my letter, but the letter that you are is the letter that is being written by the very Spirit of God in your hearts and the way in which He has redeemed you and the way in which He has been at work in you and the way in which He has made you into His people. Now, that's a pretty profound thing for him to say. And then he goes on to say that not only is that the case, 
But this work that God is doing in you, this, this letter that he is writing in your hearts and on you and through you by the lives that you lead is a more glorious letter and a more profound thing in the world than what God did when he came down on the mountain of Sinai and he wrote the Ten Commandments with his very finger on hearts, on, on, on some stone tablets. Because what he's done now is indwelt us with his spirit and written who he is and what he has done internally. And so because of that, he says, that actually has greater glory than the glory that was displayed in Sinai, which was a glorious thing. Now, let me just say right off the outset that this is hard for us. And the reason why it's hard for us is because we're visual people. We like to see things. We are drawn to things that are big, impressive, loud, that get our attention, that look like something's going on there. It's a big thing, right? And so we think that the work of God would be more fruitful and effective in our lives if God would do some more Sinai's around us. If, if there would be more opportunities for us to see God show up and speak to us in such a way that our face is shown. So much so that it would terrify people when they see us that we'd have to put a veil over our face. That some kind of outward display like that would be a much more profound way to build faith, to change us, to renew us, than the, the simple kind of quiet, unassuming way that he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, as glorious as Sinai was, what's happening right here, right now, in our hearts and lives, is more glorious. Now, that sounds like the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's even more ludicrous when you think about, he's talking about the people in Corinth who are immature, complainers, who are seeking all the time for people with big gifts and big personalities and big, big, big shows of, of, of their competencies and, and demonstrations of the outwardly of their power, uh, that that's what they're really attracted to. But what Paul says is, you know what? Even as sinful and as difficult as you are, the very fact that the Spirit of God resides in you and is at work in you is a more, more glorious thing, a better thing, a more God-honoring thing, even than when God came and gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. We think that it would be easier to follow Christ if he would show up and make a big show. Then we could say, I can really see you and I can believe you. That's what we think, right? Uh, I think that all the time. You know, Jesus, you know, the, the, the way you have given me to follow you is so lame. Bible, praying, church. Oh, let's do the exciting stuff like you did back in the Old Testament. Why don't you treat me like you treated Abraham? You showed up and talked to him. You would come and say to him what you were going to do. In fact, you came to his house one day with two angels and and you ate dinner with him 
And then you all went out on top of a hill and you looked out at Sodom and Gomorrah and you had a talk about about what God was about to do there. If you did that for me, I would be a a, a mature, uh, uh, God-honoring Christian all the time. That would build my faith. That's all I would need. I don't need That would be so much better. So let's say this afternoon you're sitting in your backyard. You've got a fire in the fire pit. You're reading the paper, getting ready to go watch some basketball. You're thinking about the week ahead. And you look up and Jesus walks into your backyard. And he sits down with you and you have a talk. And he tells you what he's about to do and uh, just you have this great conversation. And then he gets up and he walks off. And you don't hear from him again. In the case of Abraham, it was, all, you know, like 25 years. You think that would be better than the ongoing, permanent, never-ending, indwelling work of the Spirit. Paul thinks that's better. So let's, let's look at that. Uh, let's, let, let, let's look at that uh, this morning. Let's unpack this text a little bit more. Scott, put, put, put my notes up there, right? So, so what, what Paul is saying here is he doesn't need letters of recommendation. He doesn't need something outside, uh, glorious and big to kind of validate the work that God has done in the people. The fact is that they are a church and the fact is that the, that the gospel is having its effect in their lives is validation enough, right? So what, what, and, and, and one of the ways that we can see this and one of the ways that we can understand this as a better thing is, is that the work that God is doing now is not so much outward, not so much out there. He's not out there writing so much on, on stones, but that he's writing on human hearts and that this is internal. It is is more, uh, in, in some ways, more difficult for us to see. But because it is a permanent thing that happens internally, inside the hearts and lives of people, it is a more glorious and more profound thing that God is doing now than he did then. So we can, he says, that, and this is what gives him his confidence in the work that he does, because he has confidence because of the finished work of, next slide, of Christ. So we think, well, you know, if we had all these outward things, all these showy things, it would be more helpful. But the fact of the matter is, all of those outward things that were there in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the temple, the sacrifices, all the stuff that they did, all those very outward things were really just pointers to the real thing. And the real thing was that God was for his people, that he loved them, that he was their God, and that they were his people, and that Ultimately, that was going to be demonstrated and profoundly driven home to them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus would come into the world, that he would be the ultimate sacrifice, and that as a result of his death and resurrection, he would pour out upon his people his very spirit, and so that the spirit of God would be in people, on people, all the time, perpetually. So that there would be no need for these outward shows, these temporary and occasional things where God would show up and demonstrate something in a big and powerful way. That rather than that, he is eternally, steadily, day by day by day by day at work in the hearts of his people. Right? 
So what he tells us here is, is that the new covenant reveals God in a more glorious way than the old covenant. Now, the old covenant was not without glory. It was impressive when Moses was, uh, had his, uh, 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 his glowing encounter, right, his, his glowing face. Um, but the right takeaway is not that Moses saw more of God's glory than we do, but the opposite. If Moses, who wrote letters that kill, as he says here, the law that challenges us and points out to us our failures, if he saw enough of God to glow on the outside, how much more must our inside be radiant with the glory of God? So while Moses saw God in a limited and external way, the Holy Spirit is in us. And this concept provokes Paul to ask, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? You see, that's the unique thing that God is doing now. I, I, I'll give you a great uh, a great uh, illustration of this. Uh, so we just recently finished up, uh, I just recently finished up doing officer training for a new uh, group of uh, elders and deacons. And um, that's something that I give myself to uh, every, every year, uh, six months out of the year. I spend a lot of time on that. And... Uh, one of the uh, men who was, uh, you will see in another week or so, who was standing for elder, uh, was talking to me about midway through the training about what was going on with him. Now, this training, it can be, can be um, apparently impractical because we spend a lot of time just talking about theology. And, and, and uh, because I think it's more important to, to have some content to what we believe and to have certainty about the goodness and the grace of God demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ than to know how a session meeting, an elders meeting or a deacons meeting runs. This uh, elder candidate was saying, you know, when I got nominated to do this and I heard I would get to go to the training and read some books and do some work, I thought, you know, that'll be good for me spiritually. I'll go do that. But I have no interest in being an elder. I'm glad he didn't tell me that. At the front end, because if he had, uh, I would have taught in an angry way towards him probably the, the whole time. Like, what is wrong with you? Why are you wasting my time? This is the point. And he told me that he was just kind of going along for the training and, and everything was hunky dory until he was sitting right over there one Sunday and he looked at you. And he realized the Spirit of God is in these people, and I love them. So, yeah, I wasn't taking this seriously, but now I am. Now, how? what I think happened there was not only, and you may say, that, that these people... The Spirit of God in these people? I know these people. They're not that impressive. And that's the point. That's why Paul can say the glory of what God is doing internally in people's hearts and lives is greater than these big displays these big outward things that God had to do with his Old Testament people to prepare them for the ultimate coming and the ultimate glory that would be Jesus Christ. 
There's another reason why he says that this new covenant is better is because it sanctifies, it grows us, it changes us, right? Uh, the old covenant could continually expose, convict, and kill. It could, could point out to people how they were failing. It could remind people of the fact that, that they needed a sacrifice. It could, it could show to them how they were falling short so often. But what we have in the work of Jesus Christ is something that gives life and that changes us. Because the Spirit of God is in us, because the work of Christ is finished once and for all, this work is continually transforming us, right? That's because the Spirit's within us. That, that now it's not just that God is speaking to us from outside of us, that he's actually in, in us. And, and he presses upon us internally the truth of the gospel. He reminds us that he is for us. He challenges us. He rebukes us. He won't allow us to wander very long without saying, it, you, you need to repent. You need to be challenged. You, 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 this, this disconnect and this dissonance you feel in your soul. Uh, and, and your unhappiness and, and discontent with your behavior and your words and your thoughts are actually the work of the Spirit of God saying, hey, repent, trust Christ. He's good. He loves you. He's for you, right? So the reality is that God imparts himself to human hearts in Christ. And this causes us to be transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So with the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, progressive, that means it's ongoing, sanctification is experienced. Elders are made, deacons are made, the church grows and is sanctified. The world is impacted by the gospel. What happens to us, and the, the thing that we hope and that we trust in is, is that God is at work in and through us, that he is uh, never at a time and a place where he's not at work within us. Now that's hard for us to see. It seems like it would be better for us to see something big and flashy that would get my attention rather than the slow, quiet work that the Spirit of God does over time, right? But you see, what you have to see about this is, is that when God demonstrated his determination to rescue us from sin, he sent his his son and not just words. He sent his son and not just light, thunder and lightning. He sent his son, and not just giant displays of power, but he sent his son, who without the eyes of faith, we would walk by him today and never see him as the son of God at all. There was nothing about him that would, uh, in and of himself, that would draw our attention to him. And so, and so, What's happening in and through and with us now is a kind of a transformation of our understanding of glory. Because the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed to us in his death, in his passion, in his resurrection, in his suffering, in his overcoming of death for us. And so suddenly now glory becomes transformed for us, not into something that's a big display of power that gets a lot of attention and, and, and that sort of thing. It's something that's different, that involves suffering, that involves pain, that involves death, right? So, so one of the things that challenges us about this and one of the things that makes this so difficult for us about this is, is that we have to re-understand and kind of come up again with what's glory. 
How is it that God is manifesting the glory of his indwelling spirit in us day in and day out? Well, the glory of God is manifest in us. The work of God is validated in us when we are tempted to gossip, to lust, to cheat, to lie, to be cold, to give in to temper and anger. The glory of God is demonstrated in us when the the cross is more powerful to us, the death of Jesus Christ is more powerful to us and more attractive to us than that sin. But that's not all. The glory of God is demonstrated in the hearts and lives of the people of God when, when someone dies and someone in quiet faithfulness shows up at the door of the family with a casserole. Now we look at that and we think that's nothing. But in the new covenant and the, in the work that God's doing now, this side of the cross, that is a profound demonstration of the glory of God is a profound demonstration of the truth of the gospel coming to bear in someone's life and causing us to care for and love one another. But you see, it's hard for us to have those kind of values. It's, it's hard for us uh, to think that way because the way we tend to think about glory is that it is suddenly a, a, this big, big, giant display of power. And yet the God we worship, the Jesus who is for us, the spirit that indwells us now is, is quieter, slower maybe even in some ways, but steadier and ever-present in his work in and through us. You see, that's a great thing for us to settle in on. And it is a great thing for us to ask God to help us see his glory in our lives and in the lives of the people uh, that we know and that we love, that we would actually see and believe that the Spirit of God dwells in you and dwells in me and is having an impact in you and in me so that he gets the glory and so that the validation of the work of God in us is not something that we have to generate, but it is something that God very quietly and very slowly does in and through and with us. This is a hard thing for me to talk about because I love glory. Oh, man. And I'll do just about anything to get it. I am a master manipulator at getting people to give me a little glory. And you think, how can you be that way? Well, Maybe, maybe you're like that. Maybe. Um, one of, a dear friend of mine was talking recently about being at a, uh, an award ceremony for, uh, her kids and, and the, the school where her, her kid was going. And, uh, her kids, her, her child's friend got all the awards. And she was crushed. Because she wanted some glory. For a kid. And she was crushed even more because her kid comes home and says, Isn't it awesome that so and so got all those awards? <laughs> and her mom had to say, No, not really. 
let, let me, uh, uh, let me unsanctify you here by now by telling you you're supposed to be upset and selfish and want all that glory for yourself. But the work of God is different in the sense that it is, as he says now, it's written in our hearts. It's internal. It is not something that is outwardly manifest. And unless God gives us the eyes of faith to see that in one another, we just might miss it. We just might miss it in the quiet, slow, faithful way that the work of God has and does in our hearts and lives. It is better for us to have the Spirit of God. It is better for us to have this internal work of the Lord in us, renewing us, convicting us, challenging us, reminding us of his goodness, than some giant outward display of power. Because this never ends. It's constant, it's faithful, it's good, and it's with us forever and ever. Let's pray that God would help us to see that in one another that he would help us to trust that work of his glory, that letter that he is writing in our hearts. Uh, and let's look to him uh, to kind of transform our values and what we think is, is, is glorious to line up more with what he says is glorious. Let's pray. Lord, we need a sense of this today. I pray that you would help us. We uh, are so quick uh, to uh, be attracted to big talent and um, uh, just big displays of uh, human power. And yet what we see here is, is that the work you're actually doing, the glory that you're actually displaying uh, is internal. It's uh, something inside of your people, something that is not as showy as what you did uh, in and through Moses at Mount Sinai, but it is steady and it is eternal, and it has power because it is there because of the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So help us, forgive us uh, for thinking that um, you're only present in loud and uh, uh, impressive ways and failing to see you in the quiet faithfulness uh, in our friends, in our church, uh, in our own lives. Help us to trust that, help us to see that, and help us to acknowledge that as true glory. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys come up to take